Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back, everybody. So what, what every podium needs is an empty wine glass and a teaspoon so you can clink it. And that's like the universal way to get a crowd quiet, right? Asking you to be quiet doesn't work. Not when you're having so much fun. Um, welcome back. And uh, the next panel is uh, always a treat, always unpredictable, uh, always led by uh, my dear friend and colleague, Mike Sag. Mike is a professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, has been at this for as long as any of us, uh, well, most of us, and uh, will take us through some cases. Great. Mike. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be back. Um, compliments or props to you guys because um, we give these talks at different cities, and the one question I asked about a uh, cause of a bump in creatinine, um, typically other cities only get about 20% of people get it right. 56% of you did, so we're on the right track. So it, it, it's really great. So let me introduce the panel, some of whom you've already met, but starting on the on your right, um, uh, Dr. Rafi Landovitz from UCLA, uh, Eric Dar, you've already met, Dr. Judy Aberg from Mount Sinai in New York, um, Constance Benson, who is here, from UCSD and will be speaking right after me, and then Joe Iron, you've already met. So the way that this works, those of you who've been through this before know that it's kind of a wide open discussion. A lot of what I try to do is take some of what you've already heard in terms of the data from Croy, the new drugs, and incorporate it into a clinical practice scenario so we can dig a little deeper. So some of the topic areas are repeat, but it's with intention to sort of get at how we might incorporate some of this new data into what we do every day. The second preface is that these questions that I come up with um, come from the audiences and come from my clinic and also from scanning around the country. If someone comes up to me and asks a question, I'll write it down and bank it for this year's course. So um, you'll see as we go that uh, the, every every case begins with a question, and that's twofold. One, to sort of orient you to what the topic area is, and two, to sort of reemphasize that this is something that came to me from others. So these are my conflicts. Um, these are the topic areas among many, uh, and you'll see that some of it about low-level viremia, M184V, pregnancy, um, have been touched on already. So here we go, first question. It seems like we're now starting ARV therapy for just about everyone. What about starting therapy immediately, right at the time of diagnosis? So a 30-year-old woman diagnosed four hours ago in the ER. She's still in the ER. She's asymptomatic. All the, all the uh, tests are pending. She has no significant past medical history on no medication. If you want to start therapy right now, she's groovy with that. That's fine. So what would you do? Um, would you start right now in the ER within one to two days, next two weeks, et cetera, go ahead and vote. So this is, Dr. Landovitz and I are gonna sort of do it back and forth here. You had Hamilton in this city for almost a year, right? How many have seen it? Yes, awesome. So you could sing with me. All right. 
So interesting, 66% of people would start right now. Who on the panel would support that? All right, let's go with Dr. Aberg. You gotta use a microphone. Yeah, just, you know, I'll just hand them around. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, I think you just. <laughs> How about now? Yeah. Oh, good. All right. So um, I practice in New York City, and so we do have something called Jump Start there. And I think it's really important that if you go to start right away, that you do have all the services available that allow you to do this, because I think not everybody <coughs> does have access in order to do this. Um, the specific questions, though, for her are, you know, when you got to assess her readiness to begin as well. And and let's say everything is, is aligned, the stars are aligned and you're ready to go, is thinking about her, um, she's, being, she's 30 years old and the whole question of child potential is important. Typically for Jumpstart, we prescribe Descovy and Dalyotegravir um, for women of childbearing potential on birth control. Um, we have switched to um, Raltegravir on some, and you can do the once a day as not pregnant. The other option actually is the diamond study, which I don't think was mentioned, which is um, the new fixed dose combination of TAF, FTC, uh, Persista, COVID, Cystat. So, so we'll, we'll, get the, we'll get the pregnancy later in case of no, I, I think the guidelines are evolving to support this approach of immediate treatment. We do now have randomized data from Haiti that support this and some observational data as well that suggests it's a good thing, but it's very resource intensive. And the, the million dollar question is, are the resources available to link someone to follow up um, the social services involved, make sure that payment is accounted for, mm -hmm. um, appropriate testing is cooking um, uh, while you're doing that initial regimen start in case you need to modify the regimen based on those initial assessments right. that should not otherwise delay therapy. And the randomized data do suggest better biologic short-term outcomes. Great. Joe? Yeah, I, I would be a little bit cautious. Um, it, certainly our setting, I wouldn't do it because we don't, we don't have the, the jump start uh, type of... Um, and and I, I think we do need to be a little bit careful because the, 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 the data from the developing world setting is where, where there are actually clinical differences in outcomes is different than the data. So you can show it. Yeah. So, Go, you give it a talk. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you do it. No, I will. Okay. But you're right. That's what I wanted to get to. And yeah, no, I was going to make the same point. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe it's helpful to get people on early, engages them, gets their viral load undetectable quicker. That has issues about transmission. Right. But really hard endpoints and in wealthier countries have not been defined. Right, so this is, uh, these are data from 22 studies, mostly in Sub-Saharan Africa, where you can just eyeball it and see that the same day start was better at uh, uh, getting people early, obviously, keeping them in care, suppressing at 12 months, um, reduce loss to follow up and reduce mortality, not quite significant, but almost. So everyone said, oh, let's do that in the US. And the difference is that a lot of places in Sub-Saharan Africa, people are traveling by foot sometimes a pretty good distance to clinic. They get there, they get diagnosed, and then they get sent home only to come back. And they're kind of like, why am I gonna do that? But if you start in the clinic that day, then you're actually doing something. And I think it reinforces not quite 
what we see in the U.S. unless you're in rural Alabama or North Carolina or something. That's actually not too far from the truth, unfortunately. This was, try, this was attempted in Grady Hospital in Atlanta, and it sort of worked in terms of some of the metrics, at least short term. The problem was the resource cost, having people available on demand to go to the ER. I don't know about your ERs, my, our ER is packed, right? We got people on stretchers like the movie Hospital with George C. Scott. I mean, there are people just, I mean, it's, and it's a modern kind of looking hospital, but it's, it's busy. And to take an extra four hours to do this just isn't feasible. So I think the take-home point of this question is it depends. If you're ready to do it, knock yourself out. It probably would be okay if the patient's ready, like uh, Judy said and others. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think you need to be compelled to. I think the take-home point is that as long as you get them started within it's certainly the first two weeks, because that's when the, the uh, return after a diagnosis starts to decay. They, they don't show up. So if you can get them in um, within two or three days, that's ideal. Uh, and then you can maybe even have some lab back and that type of thing. So just wanted to raise the question. Now, uh, outside of the setting of acute uh, sort of start in the, in the uh, we, heard, we heard about the regimens there. Let's talk about the patient now returns in two weeks uh, after a new diagnosis. So this is a guy who was recently diagnosed his viral load comes back at 28,000, a CD4 count 650. He's HLA B5701 positive. You have that those data. Uh, wild type virus, normal renal function, okay to start therapy. Lots of choices here. Um, let's just look through them for a second and then we'll go ahead and vote and see what kind of cool music we get. All right, let's vote. To happen, you know, just something different to happen. Just waiting for something to change. Like, I think it's important also that to note that Hamilton in Chicago is closing on January 5th, 2020. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yes. So anyone who has not seen it, there's still an opportunity. So we're waiting for the answer. Anybody know this musical? Around them. 2017 Tony Award winner. Band's Interesting. The music sounds like falafel and hummus. You can imagine what that would be. All right. Let's see what we got. All right, the majority went with um, a fixed dose combination of Dictegravir. Four um, percent picked the Bacavir. Oops, there's rare, rarely in any of these. <laughs> rarely is there a wrong answer, but I tried to say as strong as I could. Their B fifty seven hundred one positive because I just wanted to get that out there. This is the only case that'll have that. So for the, that four percent, don't raise your hands. Um, this this is. A wrong it, it would have been nice to have value taker for TCS. Yes, that's coming as well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so who wants to start? Joe? Yeah, I, I would go with the with the group, I think. Um I mean, I think there are a lot of good regiments there. Certainly to have FTC a value is a terrific regimen, and that was looks like the second choice. Um just a really a choice of one pill versus two pills. And you could also argue there's more kind of long-term data with dolutegravir. So if you're a conservative prescriber, you might say, well, let's wait till Bictegravir has been in the you know basket for two or three years. So but I, I think those that, those are excellent choices. Okay. Um, Connie. So yeah, Eric raised the point, but he has a lot of the features that you might think would be very favorable for using the dolutegravir 3TC two-drug regimen. 
And so he might be somebody I would try on that. Okay. He's got a low viral load. He's got a high CD4 count. He has no other underlying risk factors. Seems. Yep. Okay. Uh, Let's discuss just for a minute this first option, because it's now generically available. It's low dose of Fovren's. That's been shown in several studies to have fewer toxicities because uh, six, instead of 600, it's 400 milligrams. A lot of the nightmare stuff, the sleep stuff has, has been reduced, uh, and the effect, efficacy is about the same. What do you all think of that? I mean, it's interesting to start to think about in terms of lower cost regimens. You know, generally moved away from efavirenz, generally moved away from TDF. Mm-hmm. So it has two knocks against it. Doesn't mean you couldn't. I don't think it's quite ready to be considered as a first line option for most people mm-hmm. because of those downsides. No. Judy. I just want to point out that some of the managed health care plans, though, are now recommending this. And we've touched on cost a couple of times. And so, um, I think this is going to become more of a scenario that we're faced with United Healthcare for one. This is now first line repairs. How do you feel about that? That seriously, that the, <laughs> sir, the the payers the, in our country we're not used to this, right? Especially at HIV, we've been kind of in a don't mess with a zone. You can put in whatever word you want for that, but don't mess with us, right? <laughs> and um, in that zone, and now we're sort of being brought into that, like a lot of other disease uh, conditions. So how do you feel when somebody tells you, you got to start with this? Well, you know me, I don't like anybody telling me what New to New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> but um, seriously, the New York State Department of Health has been querying providers, asking them about this because they're considering it too for ADAP. And, you know, one of the discussions that people have been having is, do you start with this then? And then it's for people that do have the side effects and then they would be allowed to switch. Mm. I, I still, I mean, I'm not so thrilled with this, but unfortunately I can definitely maybe be faced with this. Yeah, you know, Joe. Certainly not a, a rapid start regimen, right? Yeah. No. At least in, our, in North Carolina, it's 12%. Um, uh, and NRTI resistance. And I know it's even higher in, in some areas. So, so it kind of goes counter to that kind of rapid start uh, logic. Um, and also, um, I wouldn't trust it in, in you know, former PrEP users because of the 184V. You don't have that protection right. here. So uh, on the other hand, if you, I think you showed us this band was wild type. Um, uh, you know, I think if it if it got down to diminished resources, um, I don't I don't think it's a terrible regimen. I, right. I mean, I think it's effective, and and um, yeah, we used I'll, it for a long time. And I'm I'm not going to get on my soapbox today, but one of the big peeves I have is that we don't know what the system is paying for any regimen, and that's not HIV. That's everything, right? So everything's in this uh, opaque cloud. So we don't know what the system, we don't know what the state's paying. We don't know what the VA is paying. We don't know who, what anybody's really paying on the negotiated. We know what the average wholesale price is and all the pharmacists are nodding, but we don't know what the actual cost of the system is. And I think it would help us a lot in every disease condition that we treat to know what's actually being paid. Uh, I think we should rise up to go back to Hamilton and make a point of that. Um, what about what about the notion of TDF and versus TAF and the renal issues being perhaps 
exclusively uh, coming to, into play with a boosted regimen with cobicistat or ritonavir. Thoughts? I think observational data support what you just said, right? That if you look at observational cohorts, um, you're much more likely to see uh, uh, TDF-related um, renal toxicity in those that are with a, a co-administer with a booster. Um, we, we do know in, in switch studies and other things that the kind of, um, uh, kind of proximal tubular effects, I don't think they're really kind of damaged, you know, the... Uh, protein loss and that sort of thing. That that that, that certainly is there, is a real finding whether you're on a favarins or not. But yeah. the kind of the the more significant change in renal function, it, it seems to be, you know, exposure related, and you get more exposure with the boosted um, uh, with a boosted agent. So again, that would argue that um, uh, you know, from a renal point of view, a favarins-based TDF therapy probably. The, the safest form of, of TDF, because I think the levels are actually even slightly lower right. uh, with efavirenz. Okay. Um, yeah, to go comment, yeah. Want to make a point? Yeah, go ahead. Maybe you're going to talk about this in your talk later today, but I'm, I am I'm still have some level of concern about the bone effects of TDF. And maybe you microphone. But um, maybe you're going to talk about that. All right. Well, um, there's guidelines. There's uh, IAS USA guidelines that came out over the summer. Um, they and the HHS are basically saying the recommended initial regimens are some form of an uh, uh, integrase inhibitor. Uh, this, these are data that are now a little bit old. It came from last summer, but where Bictegravir versus Dolutegravir, either with Abacavir 3TC or uh, FTAF, um, performed identically, basically. You can't, you can't really tease out much differences. And then there's a whole bevy of other regimens that are totally fine. They're maybe not the preferred, or I don't know what the right words to use are these days, but when we pull back and we go back to Paul's introduction of this session, um, a lot of us, and I see a lot of familiar faces in the room, we've been at this a long time. And if you could have put this type of list up in 1990, holy roly, you know, there would have been dancing in the streets and all kinds of cool stuff. It took us a while to get here, but we're here. And that's what we should celebrate. I think we can get into the nuances of weight gain or kidney or bone, these people were dying in 1990, and any one of these regimens would have saved a boatload of lives. And I think we should celebrate the fact that we have these choices now. And it's just gonna be more refined as we move along. So now, here we go. So in that last case, um, we're gonna vote specifically on this because you've seen the data. Uh, would, you cons would you use Dalutegravir 3TC as initial therapy in this guy who's got um, mid-level viral load, uh, wild-type genotype, um, go ahead and vote. On the outside, always looking in will I ever be more than a voice. This is a play that Eric Dar loved. Dear Evan Hansen. Right? How many people have seen that one? All right, not as many hammers. Pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. We're waving through a window. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> Eric, you covered this. Uh, 
65% were convinced by your discussion. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't remember the hep B status, but- Negative. Okay, so as long as he doesn't have hep B and yeah. his genotype doesn't show underlying resistance, nope. um, this should be a viable option. It's not listed as a preferred option yet. I think most people are probably thinking, since we don't have a lot of two-drug data, that 96-week data will be more important. I think, you know, you have to remember Big Tegrever got, approved and listed as a preferred option in the guidelines after two studies at 48 weeks. Right. Because we have now decades experience that 48 weeks translates into 96 weeks with three drug regimens. Every reason to believe that'll be true with the two drug regimen, but we don't have as much data. So I think people are waiting for that. So I'm not sure I would, I'm ready to rush to do it for everybody. But in this case, you have maybe a good excuse because if you want to use a single tablet regimen and somebody who's HLA B5701, it's really going to be the Bictegravir regimen or this one. And a fairly and a, small tablet. And a very small tablet. And, you know, TAF is generally well tolerated. TDF is generally well tolerated in a young person without comorbidities. But not having it at all has got to be better. And it is cheaper if we're going to start thinking about costs. Except we really don't know what anybody's paying, but it seems like it should be cheaper. <laughs> yes. So you've already seen the data. Uh, then the notion of uh, Duravarine, that's another drug that's out there for us. We haven't heard much, but it's, it's a non-nuke that is pretty broadly active against a wide range of uh, mutations that might pre-exist like K103N. Um, the, I think that drug's future may be in being paired with uh, 8591, uh, but we'll see how that all plays out. Um, yeah, sure. Choice that nobody picked surprised me a little bit, and maybe that was something in the case that I don't remember, is nobody picked Rotivarine oh, FTC. Um, and I, to me, that's one of the best tolerated regimens that we, we give people. We don't know for sure, but it, it doesn't appear to have the same, at least if you look at the NACOR data, the same weight gain issues as, as Integrase. We'll sort that out. I agree with everything Eric said about no randomized data, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I think that would have been a, also a reasonable choice in this man. But maybe there was something that I missed that. Um, well, I, I, I agree. I think the only caveat is that if he doesn't have uh, a requirement for uh, uh, acid blocking, yeah. But the one point about that is there are some patients who who say, I won't take that, it's too big. I won't take that, it's too big. But the, the fixed combination of TAF, FTC, real pivorine, it's a tiny little thing. And sometimes that's the only thing they will take. So I think we shouldn't forget that. Okay. So this goes back to our question that was on the pretest that 56% of you got right. And after the question's answered, I expect 100% to get right or else you just given a written excuse of why you fell asleep at this point. So which drug is most likely to cause a 0 0.1 to 0 0.5 milligram per deciliter jump in serum creatinine one week after starting therapy? Go ahead and vote. That wouldn't be very fun or a play from Greek mythology. See a mother have sex with her son. Ugh. If it goes, see a drama with all of that this is, this is more obscure. See something that's more taxing on the brain. Yes. Let it play for It's go see a musical. Anybody see this one? Yes, great and good. This is from something called something rock. Okay. 
So, no, no, it's amazing. I just pick up on this. Mm. All right. Well, 50% of you got it right this time. Um, so I think maybe you got nervous that you guessed wrong on the pretest and jumped, but um, it actually Big Tegravir is the right answer as Dahlia Tegravir would have been as well. And the, the, the key point here is that there is something that at least I didn't learn in medical school because it wasn't there. This notion of creatinine transport uh, proteins in the proximal tubule. And in this case, the one to think about is this one called OCT2. And what it does is it can secrete creatinine through the proximal tubule from the bloodstream into the urine. So we always think about creatinine as being filtered by the glomerulus, the glomerular filtration rate and estimated GFR and that type of thing. But there's also a small fraction of creatinine that gets secreted from the bloodstream into the urine. And in that situation, with inhibition of OCT2, you don't get that. And so the serum creatinine bumps just a titch. 0.1 to 0.5. And you can see that here in the Dolutegravir studies, it went up about 0.12. But notice how quick it is. It's right away, and it's almost, it is universal. Um, the thing to remember, the reason I bring it up is because we're going to see some bumps by nature when you start a Bictegravir or Dolutegravir regimen. And don't, don't say that that's something other than just simply inhibition of OCT2. And if you have trouble remembering OCT2, just remember that's my birthday. So it's easy. It's right. It's all about me. So there you go. All right. Seems like we're starting art therapy for everyone. What about starting therapy for an elite controller? This comes up a lot, right? So here's the story. 30-year-old woman diagnosed four years ago. She's asymptomatic. Her initial HIV RNA was less than 50. And just to confirm, she had HIV at DNA uh, cellular DNA was sent, and that was positive. So she is infected. Uh, CD4 count has been stable at 870, between 8 and 900 for the four years. Um, B5701 negative. Genotype from the DNA was wild type. Um, no prior medical history. If She says, I don't know what to do. You tell me. Um, I'll start if you tell me. So what are you going to tell her? Would you start therapy at this time? Yes, no, maybe. My father newly dead, and the funeral boiled eggs now coldly furnished for the marriage table. Methinks another chef might have whisked our disparate eggs together as one. Pray, nephew, what dost thou mean? Well, I'll tell you. The fruit of life can't always taste like sweet persimmons. Same Sometimes it's hard oh, to swallow, sorry. I'm afraid. It's something rotten again. Okay, so... Um, how many of you guys would, would start? Do you agree with the audience? You'd start this person on ARB, Connie? I have to say I'm a little ambivalent. Uh-huh. As looks like some of the audience are too. We, I was just talking about, we, we try to start people who fit. But a lot of times they're not accepting of it because they, they're healthy, they've been doing fine, and they don't want to complicate their lives with therapy. Um, There's always the rationale for um, low-level blips that you never detect and possibility of transmission. But we all know from the studies now that if you're undetectable, you have almost zero chance of transmitting. I've given the argument that 
with ongoing viral replication, even if it's low level, there's induction of and inflammatory markers that may contribute to long-term end organ disease or, and other complications, and that's a reason to start. Although with many of the studies now, if they're really below detection, hard to argue that there's a lot of immune activation and inflammation that's going to contribute in the near term. So I, I'm less compelled to start than maybe I was several years ago, hmm. but I still try. Eric? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I'm on the fence. So I think this is one of those situations where you'd have a conversation with the patient. And I do think in balancing the downside, you would find them the current treatment is incredibly well tolerated. So the downside of being on therapy beyond cost is probably pretty low. Um, but you have to balance out with the unknown. And you know, the I think a lot of the reason people would justify doing it is because there is that data showing that across the population there's more inflammation in people who are elite controllers than HIV uninfected, but the degree of increase is really pretty small. Mm -hmm. Uh, it probably isn't universal across all people, and we don't have those markers in clinic to guide us. The ACTG did a study to try to address it, um, but they enrolled people who are not just elite controllers. They enrolled people who had low, low level of viremia. And they saw a change in markers, but at least I haven't seen the data, maybe others have, in that small subset of about 15 people who are truly less than 50. Well, Peter Hunt and Steve Deeks and Jeff Martin did a study that showed in the true elite controllers that that was also noticed. So the inflammatory markers indeed are up. Let's bookmark that when we get to a future question. I'll bring those inflammatory markers back. Joe? Yeah, I would just remind people that, that when you are talking about, about you're really talking about someone whose viral load is consistently or 40, and not someone who sometimes is less than 50, but other times is 200. That's right. 100. Yeah. I think they, that, the, I think they are a little bit stronger that you will uh, improve inflammatory markers um, uh, with uh, therapy. The other question that I think the ACDG study did answer is there were people that went on therapy and then went off. And some patients have asked, well, if I go on therapy and then I stop, will I lose my status as a leak controller? Like you're, 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 you're platinum. <laughs> like the airlines. Get a two for one at Amazon if you're an elite controller. It, did, it, 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 it didn't appear to be. I mean, they were back to controlling us on their own. Or they were in the early boarding group. And, were, yeah, and they, did, they did get pre boarding privileges. Yeah, that's exactly. true. And, and the other thing to make sure you tell them is that, that they should always come back to the clinic you're an elite controller until you're not an elite controller. And, and uh, we've had patients who got the wrong message and, and didn't come back for follow-up. So that, I think, is really critical. Yeah, yeah. Um, Judy. I would also just mention in, these, in this population, this is one time that I do look at CD4 count, even though they're higher, mm. because in your, when you're negotiating this and, and somebody doesn't want to go on therapy, and you start to see that decline that sometimes occurs right. in this population... So exactly. So there's two points I was going to make. The first is picking up there that we do know that the people, if you divide the elite controllers into sort of quintiles or any patients, the ones that have a very low CD4 to CD8 ratio are the ones who have the most 
end organ trouble with inflammation. So that could be a hint. If you just look at the CD4, CD8 ratio, if you see it's below one, certainly if it's below 0.5, I'd lean towards treating because that means that they're at higher risk in general of developing heart disease, kidney trouble, a lot of the things that we encounter later. The bigger question I have is that you're going to hear from Dan Brooke later about cure. And one of the, a lot of the cure folks are talking about this notion of functional cure, which in essence is creating this scenario. So wait a tick. If we're calling elite controllers people who we might want to treat, exactly what are we achieving by getting functional cure? So I'm not a big fan of functional cure, just for the record. But um, I, I would lean towards treating, and we'll see where Dan takes us in his talk. All right, should I change a, a regimen with low-level viremia? 55-year-old uh, diagnosed 18 years ago, had a really high-hour load, almost a million, a low CD4 count now has got a CD4 count of 525, has been on therapy doing well, but he never goes less than 50, certainly not less than 20. Currently, he's on dolutegravir, boosted darunavir, and 3TC. Don't have any historical resistance to look at, but he's hovering at about 60 to 80 copies. So would you change his regimen? He just came to you, or he's happy with it, you know, no side effects that he's worried about. He would maybe even push back if you want. Let's go ahead and vote. Other stuff, very specific. Shut up. I like my parents. Who said that? I love my parents. But back to Dear Evan Hansen. This is the best song in the club. If I stop smoking, it's everything. I like it. Totally. This is why we have horse racing. Before we start, you have to, you have to define titch and tick. So Define what? Titch and tick. A titch. A titch is just a little, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So most people would stay the course, wouldn't change, wouldn't be prudent. 20% would. What What about the panel? How many of you would vote to change his regimen on this visit? Nobody? Well, I would change his regimen because he doesn't need to be on all those drugs. Microphone, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I mean, if, if he never actually failed on all those other things and someone just switched him from a Favrin's, I think the last one was TDF-FTC, to this regimen, that viremia, yeah. um, he, he doesn't need to be on a boosted regimen. So I, I, it, I don't think he needs to have his regimen changed for virologic reasons, but he may be able to be on a simpler regimen. Okay. <laughs> if you didn't like him and he wanted to have a lot of loose stools, it would be a great move. Um, but Joe, the question is, you, you, you're meeting him for the first time today, right? So yeah, I today, right? right. I, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a hard sell. Hi, you don't know me. Want to change your regimen? You, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the point is, you, Joe reviewed these data uh, that the Mellers group showed um, that even with low-level viremia, like 60 or, or 64 copies, there's, there's probably almost certainly no de novo replication that's going on. And one way to think about this is that, the, especially people that had very high baseline viral loads up to a million, they've got a pretty large reservoir of chronically infected cells that periodically can be stimulated to spit out virus that might be detected. And so this is a type of person, even though there are some data that show it doesn't matter what their baseline viral load, they can still have this phenomena. The point is, is that it's not de novo replication. And all antiretroviral therapy does is stop that. 
it stops the transmission of virus from an infected cell to an uninfected cell. We're protecting that uninfected cell. So in changing his regimen, it doesn't make any sense from a virologic standpoint. And Joe said that. Judy. Um, just uh, something that was brought to my attention a few months ago is that Roche actually has changed their assay again. And we've had this happen in the past, but this newer assay is more sensitive. So people who have been suppressed less than 50 or even the less than 20, so this is the new less than 20 assay, we're seeing this low-level viremia. You know, and, and it's very low. I mean, it's yeah. less than 100 copies, but it's, yeah. you know, it's with the new assay. So what's the threshold? I think Joe said it nicely in his talk. If, if they go above 200, that's an issue. And you want to confirm, address adherence. But if it's hovering certainly below 100, I don't think I do it. Yeah, quick question. So the question is, what would what would? Yeah, I, I again going through his history, I, I would probably put him on something like um, Bictegvir, Taf, F, 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 FTC, single tablet. Um, that that's what I was thinking, looking at. Yeah. This, these are data I'm not going to dwell on because you, you saw actually a better study from Joe, but this was looking at people who persistently had low-level viremia and blips, and the bottom line is it didn't matter. Um, uh, the virologic failure uh, was mostly associated with, with a high viral load above 200. I think that's the take-home point. So coming back to some data that was shown to you, by, again, by Joe from Croy about some of the issues with pregnancy, and we got into it on the very first case with the 30-year-old lady in, in the ER. Uh, let's look a little bit more detailed. So <clears throat> this time, it's a 30-year-old woman who says she'd like to become pregnant um, uh, sometime soon. She's asymptomatic. She was just diagnosed. Remarkably, has the exact same CD4 count and viral load as the initial patient. I, I don't know how that happens. Um, this time she's B5701 negative, uh, wild type virus. Um, she got placed on dolutegravir, abacavir, 3TC, and now has got an undetectable virus. So woman who uh, came in, got treated, doing well on a fixed dose combination of dolutegravir, abacavir, 3TC, then tells you that she really would like to become pregnant soon. So what do you do? Do you keep her on that regimen or do you switch her to one of these myriad of other choices that I'll let you look at while we play some music? Elder Young, hello. Did you know that Jesus lived here in the USA? You can hello. read all about it now. Hello. In this empty book, it's free. No, you don't have to pay. Hello. Hello. My name is Elder Smith, and can I leave this book with you for you to jump cruise? Hello! 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 I'll just leave it here. It has a lot of information you can really use. Hello! Hi! My name is Jesus Christ. You have a lovely boat. Okay. It's an amazing Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let the panel sort this out. <laughs> Okay, panelists, how many of you would keep her on her current regimen right now, today? Nobody. Okay, I'll I'll try to defend that later. Uh, what would you all What would you all do, Rafi? Um, I'm I'm a 
some other option kind of guy. Um, I I would want to use Ralph Tegrevier. Uh, I would, you know, we're going to argue Dalyu Tegrevier, you know, Sapamo study. Um, you're going to argue data is evolving. Is it, are we concerned? Question of folate, we're playing into that in the, in the Botswana scenario where, where the data were from. Um, and it's certainly a reasonable argument. I think still I would err on the side of being cautious. Um, I would use Raltegravir. I would probably start with once a day Raltegravir and then when she became pregnant, switch, switch to twice a day unless she was actively trying to conceive right now. It might be make more sense to go to the twice a day Raltegravir up front. Would I leave her on a back of ear? Probably not. Would I do TDF, FTC? Probably um, just cause that's most data. Um, so that's, that's probably where I would go, but, uh, there are a number of other good options up there. Cobacistat I would not use, not okay in pregnancy. Um, uh, yeah. uh so uh, less data, um, probably going to be okay. I'm not recommended right now. So data aren't in yet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if Favarens used globally uh, as first line, um, we run uh, scared of it here. Um, question for neural tube defects. Fascinatingly, right, Sapama was designed to definitively exonerate a Favarens as a cause of neural tube def- defect, which it appears to actually have done, but raised this other specter. So complicated, but a lot of good options. That's actually a good answer. Um- yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't have said it better. Yeah. Why do you seem so surprised? No, no, I wouldn't. I didn't mean it that way, but I thought it was comprehensive. It's good. Yeah. I mean, the only caveat I would add is that, I mean, first of all, I think that the guidelines are totally squirrely and they're consistent with what Rafi said, and because there's a huge focus on dosing people as if they're pregnant. In which case, if things like doesn't really probably matter, Raltegravir once a day, twice a day, until they're well into the second trimester. The same thing as Cobacistat. I completely agree with them, but most of that really matters once they're pregnant. So as long as you're paying attention to them and identify when they're pregnant. As far as which third drug to use, you know, Favarin's, there's probably the best data on safety. Raltegravir is the one the guidelines are recommending as integrase option. But what we've learned from every attempt to analyze existing data sets on raltegravir is that there's no signal, Mm -hmm. but that the sample size is consistently too small to exclude a signal. So we do it because we don't have anything else to work with right now, but I don't think we can do it with absolute certainty. Right. Connie? So I'm not going to offer any other choices. I just want to make a comment. Um, I don't know. I wasn't fully paying attention to everything you said, Joe, <laughs> but... Um, she will tell you what email she was answering. At the yeah, I, I can tell you that if you're interested. But the, uh, I just wanted to highlight a very nice talk in one of the symposia that Lynn Moffinson did analyzing the global data available on neural tube defect and integrase inhibitor therapy. Do you have that slide? There's a very nice model that she showed that suggested how many additional cases we would need to see before we could conclude definitively that yes or no, dolutegravir was related to the neural tube defects. And one of the things that none of these discussions has taken into account is the background rate of neural tube defects as a congenital abnormality. And there you have it. It's 0.1 per 
you know, basically About one in a thousand, I think. Yeah, yeah. one in every it's ten. Yeah, it's a very common congenital abnormality, and it's very possible that these four cases in the cohort were a coincidence of or confluence of other events. There's also the relationship with folate deficiency and those issues that contribute to the risk for neural tube defect. And because these data were presented from a resource-limited setting where pregnant women do not routinely get folate supplements unless they get good prenatal care, I think it's just... It, I think their data aren't complete yet, but mm -hmm. the analysis that Lynn did, if you're really interested in a very careful analysis, you can go to the website for CROI and look on that uh, for that symposium. Just type in Lynn Moffinson, it'll bring up the presentation and watch it. It's just 30 minute talk and it's excellent. And really, I think puts to rest a lot of the uncertainty around this question, yeah. but also with the addition that if as when we accumulate 2,000 pregnancies with no additional neural tube defects identified relationship in relationship to dolutegravir, yep. you can effectively say that that was by chance. It was a statistical and not, a, not an effect. So those data, from what I've been told, are coming out soon, like now, yeah, like mid-May, mid yeah. where here we are. And so I, I, I couldn't have answered the questions any better than the panel did. I just want to add to what Connie just yeah, said, please. because at that, at that symposium, somebody else came to the microphone and asked how long it would take before people would feel confident, even after the data, because you think about Efavirenz, even after we all, they, they removed it from the FDA, it's still you know, people still raise concerns that is a fabric still associated with neural tube defects. So even if next year we have more data and it looks like this is not real, will people still feel confident enough to go ahead and prescribe it? Right. So great points. Um, I don't have a lot to add except to re-emphasize that there were four cases out of 400. So signal. Same thing happened in a Favrens. And Everyone freaked out and said, you, you're committing, you know, high treason, high crimes and misdemeanors. You'll be impeached if you use efavirenz when people are pregnant. And now, yeah, and now they're saying that for dietegravir. My, my bottom line on this particular case right now is that regardless of what I personally think, which is basically I might be okay giving her folate right now and keeping her on a regimen, and that would probably protect her. The fact is, if she by chance ended up being one of those one in a thousand who happened to uh, deliver a baby that had a neural tube defect, I don't have a whole lot of defense, right? Shouldn't you have known, Dr. Sag, that this could happen? And my answer would be, yeah. And why'd you continue it? Well, I just kind of thought, well, it ain't going to hold water. So um, I think until the data are coming in, and I think it personally will exonerate the drug, but uh, for now... Um, I don't know. There's a couple of really elegant studies that are going to be coming out in some journals, a paper I reviewed I can't talk about, but I will for a brief second, that, that, looked, at, that looked at the mechanism of how folate, how folate interferes here. And it's really a great study. So just keep, it should be out in the next month or two. Um, and I think these also are um, more of the same saying that, here it is, one in um, 3,100. Uh, so one, one in a thousand isn't a whole lot different. 
In fact, that's less. Okay. So let's go to the story that Joe talked about a little bit. Um, you got somebody with an M184V at baseline. Here's that uh, same kind of lady. Um, her viral load now is 128,000, CD will count 350, B5701 negative, has an M184V and a K103 in a baseline. And everything else doesn't plan to be pregnant as far as she's concerned and okay to start therapy. Um, here we have an option for Dalutegravir um, 3TC. We have an option for some other uh, choices. Go ahead and vote. This is from Newsies. Great choreography. Story kind of lame, but music okay. Alan Menken gets a, gets a, gets a two thumbs down. <laughs> but the choreography was pretty good. That stands side by side. It was gymnastics. Fair enough. Entertaining gymnastics, but all right. All right. What does the panel think? Oops. We got 10%. I don't have many wrong answers, but when you got a 184V, eh -eh, you're not going to use the two drug Dalutegravir 3TC. Sorry for those, the 10% of you who don't raise your hand, uh, who picked that, just reinforce that if they got an M184V, this two drug regimen option for that Dalutegravir 3TC is off the table, right? Okay. So who wants to comment? What would you got, uh, Eric? Yeah. Oh. No, go ahead. Okay. So, so there's two ways to look at this. One way to look at it is, you know, what what data do we have to support this decision? And the other one is the the Joe Iron way. It'll probably work. So, <laughs> so, so to get it straight, it's either evidence based or faith based. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not, yeah. So you know, so if you, if you look at the data, we have a lot of data for acquired. 184V plus or minus 103N treatment. We've got all of those, you know, those second line studies and earnest study that all said a boosted PI with nukes, recycled nukes even, or a boosted PI with an integrase inhibitor will work. So that would certainly work in a patient like this. And then we have the really robust data from Donning showing that dolutegravir with at least one active nuke, which would not be challenging in somebody who only has 184V, will work. So I think if you went down either of those paths, you'd be on really solid ground from a data perspective. And then you look at the choice that was made most common, and that's the Bictegravir. And, and you know, I, I say it mocking a little bit, but the reality is Bictegravir does in vitro have a higher barrier to resistance like Dolutegravir. Molecularly, it seems to structurally look a lot like Dolutegravir. At least in the naive trials, there's been no emergent resistance like Dolutegravir but it hasn't been stressed either by follow-up of therapy or two-drug type dual therapy like Dolutegravir. Mm -hmm. It probably will work okay. just like Dolutegravir, but it's a complete extrapolation from the Donning study to choose TAF-FTC-Bictegravir. And you just need to know that going, going in. Joe, you can defend your honor here. No, no, I, I agree with exactly what, what Eric said. I think uh, I... It, is very likely to work. I wouldn't have a problem using it, but the data would support, I think, either choice, um, uh, whatever, that 10% there, thank you, the TAF-FTC uh, dolutegravir, 
or I think also would support the um, combination with uh, boosted uh, darunavir. Um, I think those would be um, su supportable uh, based on the, the, the data that we have. So Yeah, the only other point I would make is the Bacavir 3TC dolutegravir yeah, choice. I was just gonna mention yeah, because strictly speaking, that would be one active nuke, but it is important to know again, based on the data and donning, because just investigator choice of nukes, almost nobody chose this. Yeah. So there's virtually, I mean, there's a couple percentage of people, and there is at least biologically a reason yes. where a bacteria may not work as well as tenofovir. So somebody asked Joe at, during the Q&A, what does he mean by fully active? Um, and that means the drug in vitro would be active against that particular variant. In the case of Abacavir, when there's an M184V, it is mostly active, but it's not completely fully active, right? So if you're struggling with what to do here, the choice of Abacavir in this setting with an M184V, you might lean more towards the TDF or TAF um, backbone for that, but Dalutegravir itself with TAF FTC should, in my opinion, still work. Partly also because those mutations, if you look at phenotypes, um, the presence of those mutations can actually increase the susceptibility of tenofovir some. So it may counterbalance, and I realize that's literally hand-waving. You saw me waving hands as I said that. Um, but I think, I think they're going to do okay, and I think most of us do that. Yeah, the, the one thing I would – I don't actually know in the dawning study, somebody – knows, somebody maybe with a red badge, is in, in the dawning study, if there was an M184V, was the Bacavir con considered fully active? I, I, don't, I don't actually don't know the answer to that, um, but that someone does. Okay. We can look it up. Her Harold probably knows. Well, Okay. But, but so so in, in Dawning, Abacavir was considered fully susceptible, but nobody chose it. Yeah. So, all right. So we're going to finish up here with um, uh, the weight gain question. This will be our last case, um, which you've already seen data. Well, I wanted to dig into this a little bit more. So there's a 47-year-old woman who started on Bic Taf FTC 12 months ago. And she had originally been on a darunavir-based regimen. Um, and now her weight has gone from 145 to 171. Um, so the question is, with that weight gain uh, solely, um, would you keep her on her current regimen or would you switch her to something else? Uh, that's really the essence of the question. Let's go ahead. I got more holes than a phone book in Tokyo. You better stop rapping. You're not ready. It's gonna get hot and heavy. And you already sweat. So yo, 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 yo. Sorry, you got it in. Suck it. Shut up. Go home and pull your damn pants up. That's for you, Mr. Fugo of the Shire. Nike's jeans ain't enough to retire more. I have enough to knock your ass off your back. You have a knapsack full of jack after tax. 96,000. All right, 64% would stay the course. A bunch of people would switch. Thoughts? Well, I, I certainly wouldn't switch on this visit. You have to find out what else is going on in her life. And, and um, I didn't mention two other studies when I gave the talk. Eric pointed out 
Rafi's work about no change in weight on cabotegravir. Um, uh, but in the DISCOVER study, comparing TAF to TDF in a randomized way, um, uh, in a blinded randomized way, um, there was actually more weight gain in the people on TAF. They didn't, they, they sort of just said, well, it was a kilogram. They didn't give us a precise number, but there, there was uh, more weight gain with TAF. So that's possible, but you need to find out about her diet. There's a lot of stuff you need to know before you go around switching a regimen. On the other hand, I do think there is a small subset of patients that occasionally gain a lot of weight on our integrase-based therapy. I, I don't know if that's real or not, but that's just my clinical impression that this is occasionally happening. Yeah, I, I, I think Joe's, uh, I would agree with Joe's answer there that study that um, kind of made made the point for me is the study that Grace McConsey presented at Croy about weight gain over time and looking at not just by drug class, but what is what is the average for an entire population? And there were 30% of the population had weight gain, 30% had weight loss, mm -hmm. and the rest stayed the same. And so there's the, a seg, and that was regardless of dolutegravir in the regimen. So I think, yes, there's probably weight gain associated with dolutegravir. And for some people, it can be dramatic weight gain. But I think you need to explore what else is going on before you attribute it so solely to dolutegravir. Right. So this is what I wanted to dig in a little bit, and uh, we can finish with this. So these are the data that Joe showed you. A couple of points. Um, the, the percent of the predicted weight gain, uh, I can't remember if this is kilograms. It is kilograms. Yeah, yeah. Kilograms. it's kilograms. So that's a, that's a fair amount of weight. That's, you know, 12, 15 pounds or so. And, but, but all the groups are going up. But what I wanted to point out was that a lot of the weight gain was in the first six months. So now look at the graphs and you kind of say, hmm, uh, that, what's going on in that first six month period? And this is kind of a common theme that I think we should personally think we should all do anytime we see something that's phenomenological, like an association of this with, so we should ask why? What's happening? Is it the drug or is it something else? Just like with dolutegravir, is it with pregnancy or other P, uh, integrase inhibitors, maybe it's an interaction with folate. And so when you look at it that way, um, just in that first, then it kind of levels off. So one of the things that could be going on, maybe not in this particular case, because she was already on therapy, you take the naive patients where a lot of these data were generated. We already talked about cytokines. Remember, we talked, said bookmark the inflammatory markers. So you've got ongoing replication. You've got you know, one to 10 billion viruses produced a day in immunological response, and suddenly you shut that off, and the virus comes down nicely, and the, inflam and the inflammation goes away in four to six weeks in the lymphatic tissue. And the serum TNF and the serum IL-6 and the, all the badness tends to go away. Well, subtly and probably clinically, those folks weren't feeling quite as well. Maybe their appetite wasn't as good, and now they're getting back to a healthy phenotype. And they're going to eat a little bit more, and they're going to they're going to gain weight. That's not to me unexpected. So I don't have um, I'm not sure what we should make of this, but I, I like a lot you know the perspective, Connie, you made that it's it's not predictable, and I'm not sure 
I get all turned around with all these phenomenologic things that get reported. And it's in a marketplace, frankly, where drug companies are trying to say, use my product because I get a little bit of an advantage here. What that's telling me is that their drugs are roughly equivalent. And then they try to create a, a marketplace differentiator that we obsess over. And frankly, I, I don't want to fall into that trap. I want to use what's best for the patient. So to me, what I do is I counsel the patients just like I do when they stop smoking, right? When you stop smoking, anticipate you might gain some weight. Just be prepared for that. And they can manage it. And I think that's, from my perspective, what's, what's going on. All I know personally is that ever since I started writing prescriptions for integrase inhibitors, I've gained weight. So there's some of their... <laughs> And I don't know what to do about it. I think I'm going to stop writing prescriptions for integrase inhibitors. And, and Mike, it's also important to remember that while we're worried about this and we're trying to sort it out, there's a reason why integrase inhibitors are preferred options. Yeah, because they work and Yeah, really so, well. so abandoning them based on the fact that they're preferred options based on a lot of data because of a lot of unanswered questions would probably be a mistake as right. well. I'm going to give the last word to Dr. Landeville. Here's a study you're familiar with. Um, where you use cabotegravir as PrEP, and from what I could see of your data, there, there wasn't a significant weight gain. you want to walk us through this a little bit? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, so this is data from HPTN 077, which was a phase two study of long-acting injectable cabotegravir versus a placebo in HIV uninfected low-risk people. And this was global. Um, it was 66% women. Um, it was about 200 patients. And um, the caveat to this is weight was not a pre-specified analysis here. So, so it was not done in any sort of standardized way. Um, but a post hoc look at weight and changes in fasting glucose and fasting um, lipids um, showed no difference between the participants who were randomized to cabotegravir um, and the participants who were randomized to placebo. They both had about one kilogram of weight gain and no changes in their fasting metabolic parameters. So we didn't use HOMA-IR, we didn't use fasting insulin, weight wasn't standardized, however... Right. Connie. So the other caveat is these are HIV uninfected right. people. Right. And the question for me from this study is if you exchange dolutegravir for cabotegravir here, would you also see the same outcome with no particular change in weight and HIV uninfected people getting it for PrEP? Yeah, I mean, if, I don't know. But I don't if, know. I, if I had a nickel, I'd say it would look identical because the drugs are so similar chemically, right? And the delivery is different, obviously. But um, I think this, to me, sort of helped push me more towards the fact that this might be a phenomena of effective drugs inhibiting inflammatory processes that might interfere with appetite. And the same, you can say people who smoke also are stimulating and causing inflammation, et cetera. When they stop, maybe that gets better. All right. We got 10 minutes for questions real quick, and then we go to Dr. Benson's uh, lecture. Um, so we'll, I got a bunch of questions. So quick questions, quick answers. Um, so you got somebody who's on uh, Bictegravir, um, FTC, TAF, and they're complaining a little bit of nausea. What about switching to Dalutegravir 3TC, assuming all the right caveats are met? Joe? Yeah, I, I think that's a plausible uh, way to go. I think in the summer, we'll have data from Tango that will help solidify that decision. Okay, what do you do with a patient with undetectable viral load, no comorbidities, but CD4 count is falling? That's another question I've asked in the past. So the CD4 count's dropping despite suppressed virus. You know, sure enough, as we say, suppressed virus. So 
what do you all do with that type of case? Worry. <laughs> Worry. <laughs> okay. Are Worry. We... They, I would, you know, there, there is some relationship in, uh, to kind of a lymphoma diagnosis. We looked at this in, in CNEX and we saw that, that um, you know, a, a small number of people that had a declining CD4. Um, but, but for most people, the other thing I would ask is what's the age of the patient? Um, we actually don't have like normal CD4 counts for 70 or 80 year olds. And um, I've noticed that in some of my people older than me. Um, uh, they're, those they're, few. Th those few. I actually have quite a few, actually, um, <laughs> as it turns out. Oh. Some of them were um, uh, Susan's patients, actually. I took over her clinic. Yeah. 27 years so, ago. So what, what I think, I think a, a key point here for, is that it's not just the CD4 that's probably dropped. It's probably the total lymphocyte count that's gone down. So I look carefully at the percent CD4. I bet that stayed the same. So I think as Joe mentioned, then you got to think about what are the things that cause lymphopenia and could there be some other underlying process? So the worry isn't so much that the regimen's failing. The worry is that there may be a comorbidity that's sort of smoldering that you, you want to look at. All right. So here's an interesting sidebar question to one of the cases, elite controller who becomes pregnant. Would you treat? Yes. Yes. Okay. That was quick. Um, should inflammatory markers be be checked routinely before starting uh, the elite controller? Would you maybe the CD4 CD8 ratio? You've already kind of got it, and that might be a hint. So if the CD4 CD8 ratio is really high, you might lean a little bit against against it if you're on the fence, but. Yeah, I, I personally. Yeah, I mean, the decision to treat is faith based. Right, it is yeah. faith based, and I believe we should have had that solved. Okay, um, now that generics are available, insurance maybe won't cover um, that the established or whatever the recommended agents. Would you change his regimen? In other words, you got somebody on one of the preferred regimens, if you will. The insurance company says we're not covering that anymore. So you pull Terry tenon and you'd rather fight than switch. No, I've had that happen. But I get that. I mean, it, it really it is happening. United Healthcare again is is one that's been in the news the most about doing this. And the the option is uh, people paying copays. Um, so if they can afford it, they can stay on. But if they can't, right, you know. So a related question is, um, now that the Favrin's 400 um, FTC or 3TC TDF is generic, what's its uh, AWP cost? I think it's about $1,000 a month or something. It's, it's less. Well, we have to look that up. Or maybe any of the pharmacists know the answer to that? The Simphilo? We can look it up. It's probably on, you could probably Google it right now. All yeah, right. but again, Mike, you know, it's your your thing about we never know what prices are. That's right. So, so you, could, when you look at that Truvada versus SimDuo, depending on what your negotiated rate is, the Truvada actually may be cheaper than the SimDuo. Yeah. So here's a point that the current first line regimens, none of which currently are recommended for women who are pregnant or yeah. So how how are we dealing with that? How's that working for us? Well. Reltegravir is still in the DHHS guidelines. As, as a preferred, as a preferred okay. option. And that may be a big reason for it to be there. Yeah, IUDs, birth okay. control. 
One of the questions is about TDF versus TAF in pregnancy. Uh, we gently touched on it. I had a slide that I passed through for the interest of time. But right now, there aren't enough data. There's evidence that TAF crosses into the uh, the fetus at a, at a higher level than TDF does. So the question is, are there any consequences of that? I think it's something like three or four fold more. But is that clinically significant? Probably not, but data need to get collected and that's underway. Um, I've now seen two cases of what seems to be gynecomastia in men on Bictegravir. Have you all, are you all seeing that or is there any association of any of the drugs with hypogonadism or that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, hypogonadism clearly occurs in people that have HIV. So, uh, I mean, it may be true, true and not related, but, um, uh, you know, I think that um, that's an easy one to test, I would think, because there are alternatives if, they, if they're on a simple regimen. You could, you, that's one you could test and see yeah. whether changing affects the gynecomastia or the testosterone. Right, I know, I know. And so, ask about so, marijuana. Yeah, yeah, so marijuana right yeah, there you go. Smoke weed every day. So uh, we're going to talk about on-demand prep later. Um, that was one of the questions. Backbone choices in a B5701 positive person and renal insufficiency. So somebody's got, let's say they've got CKD and their creatinine is three and a half. What are you going to do? Their creatinine clearance is 30. Yeah, so you know that was a big problem with TDF and the back of air. Um, with TAF, it opens the door up for at least people with creatinine clearances down to 30. And now we have a lot of two-drug regimens, depending on their underlying resistance pattern, where you can avoid tenofovir so and the Abacavir completely. could be good there. If there's no, no underlying no resistance, sure. But just to clarify, Abacavir is okay with renal uh, failure, right? It's, right. Oh, Abacavir. I thought you said B5701. Yeah, right. I'm, yeah, you okay. were referring to that. Yeah. Right. So that was the point. It is. Yeah. So Abacavir is okay, but you have to break it up if, if they the go B, below 50, 50 because of the 3TC. Um, so I'll finish with this question. Low level of viremia. I shouldn't worry, but what if I repeat the viral load after one month or should I wait until quarter of the lab? So what do you do with that person who's kind of hovering at 60 and we said, don't worry about them, but... You know, if that's that first viral load at 60, do you bring them back a little sooner? If, if they've been consistently, if they've been consistently suppressed less than 50, and and then they're 60, I would bring them back in one to two months and 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 recheck it just on the off chance that you've they're caught them the very early. That on the other hand, if if they're consistently 60 or 70, I would you know follow them either quarterly or six monthly if it's really been consistent for a while. Right, which is why I set the case up the way I did, where there it's clearly an established pattern of being there. So it's not coming from less than 20 to 60 on. So I think if it's coming from fully suppressed where you can't detect, target not detected, and now it's 60, I'd probably bring them back in a month to six weeks and recheck. And Jerry, Eric, you, you, you presented an interesting presentation about a year ago. I don't know if it's been published. It has. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if someone's consistently suppressed and then they have a viral load of 60, if you actually take that sample and test it multiple times, it's more likely to be actually less than 50. Uh, it, it's this kind of regression to the mean and variability among labs. And also if you, you, know, you dilute virus down and you, you think you have 50 copies in, in, in an assay and then you test that, you'll get anywhere from you know, 15 to 100. Uh, you know, there's a range that the mean will be right around 50, but there is a range. So, yeah. so I, 
And then Judy's caveat about the new assay that's going to be playing with us a little bit. So just be prepared for that. All right. That's all we have time for. Great participation by you guys and the panel and this wonderful session. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. That was, uh, that was great. Um,